Hello and welcome to the Oleaster podcast, the audible version of articles on oleaster.org. I am Devin Phillips, the author and your narrator. Without further ado, let's dive in. Roots of Rage Part 3 Amalek and Anti-Zionism This episode is the third and final installment of a three-part series on the varied factors of the global controversy and conflict with Israel, especially in light of the war with Gaza in May 2021. You can listen to the first and second installments on Substack. You can also read them there with some extra notes. Um, You can also listen to this series on SoundCloud or wherever you listen to podcasts. So without further ado, here's Roots of Rage Part 3, Amalek and Anti-Zionism. When rockets fly in the skies over the Gaza pocket and are intercepted by the Iron Dome anti-missile system, they burst in a strangely spectacular display. It is hard not to be mesmerized by the glow of the averted destruction. There is a sense of relief to some who see the explosions flash in the night sky. To others, a sense of frustration. In the latest Gaza conflict of May 2021, that frustration was not only expressed by Hamas and Islamic Jihad, who were actively shooting the rockets, but by others from all over the globe. Politicians, academics, and activists wondered aloud if the Iron Dome insulated Israel too much from the, quote, consequences of its own actions, unquote. Israel could conduct airstrikes on Gaza, but Gaza was essentially forced to watch 80 to 90 percent of its launched arsenal go up in smoke without claiming many casualties. The existence of this defensive tool that allows civilians to go about their daily lives with less disruption and destruction means that Israel doesn't have to deal with the more significant issues, such as Israel's oppression of the Palestinians in Gaza. It just isn't fair, and it's prolonging the conflict by not forcing Israel to have to deal with the deeper issues. Such flawed reasoning even reached the halls of Congress when questions arose over the funding of the Iron Dome project. When objections to budget allocations cropped up on the grounds of the, quote, immoral nature, unquote, of the Jewish state, it was opposed with astonishment by those who saw the sinister heart of this objection. Were those asking to defund Iron Dome payments doing so by blatantly stating that more Israeli citizens should die? Were they seriously asking to dismantle a purely defensive program that would inevitably lead to civilian suffering and death? Had those proposed defunding lost the plot? Sadly, the reasoning behind these proposals of boycotts has deep roots that range across history and geography, and the existence of such arguments would not be a surprise to a student of either discipline. However, those with this broader perspective rightly see that these sentiments are alarming. Similar claims have been used to cover up and justify an ugly hatred of the Jewish people for almost as long as they have been a people. In part one of this series, we explored the immediate context of the May war between Israel and Gaza from the geopolitical realities of the Iran axis of power to details of legal disputes in the West Bank, to controversies around Al-Aqsa and its complex on the Temple Mount. In part two of this series, we examined the formation of the Palestinian movement, the effectiveness, or lack thereof, of the Oslo Accords, 
and the explored reasons for media bias. In part three, we'll go deeper still into time and theology, where an ancient rage has manifested over millennia, setting the stage for two catalytic events in the last century, the Holocaust and the founding of the State of Israel. Nothing new under the sun. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. This lament of King Solomon perfectly frames the story of the seemingly unending cycle of baseless hatred against the Jewish people. We first see this rage rear its ugly head in the Bible as soon as Israel is a distinct nation coming out of Egypt in the Exodus. Near a place called Rephidim, the Amalekites attacked the Israelites as they left Egyptian territory. Moses climbed up a nearby hill as the battle raged, interceding for Israelite victory with raised hands. While Moses lifted his hands, the Israelites prevailed. Aaron, his brother, and another named Hur supported Moses' arms to win the battle. The motivations for Amalek's attack are not clear. However, their dishonorable conduct is later recorded in Deuteronomy. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary, and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. God's response to Amalek's actions provide insight to how seriously he condemns them. Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Later, when the princes of Moab assembled to wipe the people of Israel off the map, they hired a man named Balaam to curse the Israelites and weaken them before their attack. However, every time Balaam turned to curse Israel, he ended up speaking blessing and affirming God's covenant with the Israelites. Balaam uttered this prophecy at the end of his fourth oracle. Amalek was the first among the nations, but its end is utter destruction. What could he have meant? Could Balaam seriously describe Amalek as the most powerful nation when they were all in the shadow of mighty Egypt? No, he must mean that Amalek was the first among the nations to attack the fledgling Israel. And because of this rage against the people and God's covenant, their end would be utter destruction. Indeed, Israel's first king would lose his kingship and dynasty over lenience to God's command to wipe out Amalek entirely. The Amalekites, as descendants of Esau, inherited disdain for the unique promises of God to the descendants of Jacob and represented an existential threat not only to God's promises to Abraham regarding the land and children, but that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through Israel. After rebuking King Saul for his negligence and declaring Saul's kingship void, the prophet Samuel killed the surviving King Agag of the Amalekites, but some of his line still survived. One distant son of Agag was Haman, a court official who sought to kill all of the exiled Israelites living in Persia. Only through the intercession of Queen Esther, the faith of Mordechai, and God's zeal for his covenant were the sons of Benjamin and Judah living in the Persian Empire saved. 
Haman was hung on his gallows that he had meant for Jewish Mordechai, but the rage of Amalek lived on. After the prophet Samuel destroyed Agag and the Amalekite armies when Saul defeated them, after the Simeonites killed the remainder of Amalek during the time of King Hezekiah, and after Haman and his sons were executed by royal decree, it seemed like Amalek as a people were indeed wiped out. This extinction seemed to tally with the prophecy of Balaam that Amalek's end would be utter destruction. But despite Amalek not posing a material threat anymore, this command of the Lord remains in effect. You shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. A strange command. Erase, but don't forget. How can you blot out a memory and simultaneously remember? We cannot overstate the severe evil of trying to avoid the covenant of God with Israel. The Lord is zealous for his promises, and his judgment justly falls on those who despise his words. As the seer Balaam eloquently said, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Amalek was the first among nations to try to snuff out the people of the covenant, but unfortunately they would not be the last. Israel could not and should not forget that they have an ancient opposition that has sought their destruction at every turn in the guise of many different people. This enemy is ultimately marked for utter destruction and will be blotted out by the God of Israel. But in the meantime, we must not forget what is at stake. Never forget. After the Babylonian exile, the kings of Persia eventually let the Jewish people in exile return to the land of Israel and rebuild the temple. But these little people and their small territory were at the crossroads of empires, and it was not long before they were a conquered nation again. Subject to Greek and then Roman rule, the Jewish people suffered immensely at the hands of tyrants such as Antiochus Epiphanes, a Greek king of the Seleucid Empire who forbade Jewish rites such as circumcision and ordered the worship of Zeus as the supreme god. The Jews of Jerusalem refused and were subsequently slaughtered, and Jerusalem was sacked. Antiochus then profaned the temple by offering pagan sacrifices. After such an attack on the heart of Israel, the Jewish people rallied under the Maccabees' leadership and were miraculously able to repel the Seleucid armies. The Jewish people governed themselves in Israel for a brief time, but it wasn't to be long. Sixty or so years before the birth of Jesus, the Roman general Pompey conquered Jerusalem, and Israel became part of the Roman Empire. Tensions between the Roman rulers and their Jewish subjects led to a series of wars which culminated in the destruction of the temple, the slaughter of over one million Jews, the selling of over a hundred thousand Jewish people into slavery, the scattering of the remnant of Jewish people across the Middle East and the Mediterranean Basin, and Judaism no longer being recognized as a legal religion within the Roman Empire. Circumcision, reading the Torah, and eating unleavened bread at Passover were outlawed. A temple dedicated to the Roman god Jupiter was erected on the Temple Mount, and a temple dedicated to the goddess Venus was built on Golgotha. This instinct to destroy the people of Israel that began ultimately with the Amalekites and was continued by ancient Greece and Rome would eventually manifest in areas later controlled by the Islamic Caliphate and Christian Europe. 
even or perhaps especially as a people in exile and without a nation, the Jewish diaspora was subject to the worst forms of discrimination and attempted genocide. The first crusade of Christian Europe to liberate Jerusalem from Islamic control was launched in AD 1096. As the crusaders traveled through Europe to the Middle East, Jews were their primary target. Over 12,000 Jewish people were killed in the Rhine Valley alone during the first crusade. The persecution of Jewish people living in Europe during the Crusades was so bloody that historians sometimes refer to this as the, quote, first Holocaust, unquote. But if we thought that Jewish populations under Islamic rule were living free of persecution, then the great Jewish sage Moses Maimonides would have to disagree. Quote, the nation of Ishmael persecute us severely and devise ways to harm us and to debase us. None has matched it in debasing and humiliating us. None has been able to reduce us as they have." Unquote. Indeed, this is hardly surprising, as one of the accomplishments of Muhammad and his successor, Caliph Omar, was eliminating Jewish presence from the Arabian Peninsula. Like Antiochus and Rome, who erected their temples on the Temple Mount, the Muslim conquerors of Jerusalem built the Dome of the Rock and Al-Aqsa Mosque over the ruins of the Jewish temple. But not only does Islam find a historical precedent to justify erasing the Jewish people, it has an eschatological reasoning as well. In a famous passage from the Hadith, the following prophecy is recounted. Judgment Day will not come before the Muslims fight the Jews, and the Jews will hide behind the rocks and the trees, but the rocks and the trees will say, O Muslim, O servant of Allah, there is a Jew behind me, come and kill him, except for the Garquad tree, which is one of the trees of the Jews. But though many Jews suffered horrifically under the rule of the Islamic Caliphate, the accounts of Jewish suffering under Christian Europe are often more severe and on a grander scale. Laws were passed forbidding the practice of the Jewish religion. Children were taken from their parents and put into Christian families. Jews were forcibly converted, baptism or death. Jewish doctors were forbidden from treating Christian patients. Jewish possessions were seized by their government. Jews were made to wear unique clothing that marked them as a despised minority. Entire Jewish populations were exiled from England, France, Portugal, and Spain. Cities with larger Jewish populations forced their Jewish neighbors to live in ghettos. Jews received the blame for spreading the Black Plague and for being a source of disease and pestilence. Jews were burned alive inside synagogues. Other bizarre and hysterical accusations against the Jews spread, the most famous and persistent of which is known as the blood libel, that Jews used the blood of Christian children to make their unleavened bread for Passover. Suppose Jews thought that the source of their persecution might be the Roman Catholic Church, as it was the most potent supranational institution in Europe. In that case, they might have felt hope that a reformation of that organization would bring them relief. Unfortunately, such fathers of the Reformation as Martin Luther and John Calvin, as well as their successors, were as zealous in their persecution of Jews, promoting the burning of synagogues and Jewish prayer books. For many contemporary Christians, these medieval persecutions seem unthinkable and utterly irreconcilable with the central values of Christianity. How could the church be so far from the heart of God for so long? 
What was the spirit at the bottom of such hatred? Indeed, the deeper the study of this period of history goes, the more profound the sorrow. Like Esau and the Amalekites, the church despised the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Such hatred is evident in statements such as this question posed by Martin Luther. Quote, what then shall we Christians do with this damned, rejected race of Jews? Unquote. If God had rejected Israel utterly and his covenant with them was eternally and irreparably broken, then so should we deny these people and partner with God in punishing them. Such nonsensical hypersupersessionist reasoning flies in the face of many passages of Scripture. Not least was Paul's explanatory prophetic passage on God's faithfulness to his people, Israel, in Romans 9-11. through 11. Indeed, this willful blindness to Scripture and cruel persecution would have significant repercussions in the future. As Catholic priest, teacher, and author Hans Kuhn remarked, Nazi anti-Judaism was the work of godless anti-Christian criminals, but it would not have been possible without the almost 2,000 years prehistory of Christian anti-Judaism. Why do the nations rage? With the advent of the Enlightenment, national boundaries were shifting and governments were reorganizing. It seemed, at last, there was an equal place for Jews living in more secular Europe. Many Jewish people began not only to assimilate, but to prosper. One such Jewish man, named Theodor Herzl, resided in Vienna, Austria, in the late 1800s and early 1900s. In many ways, he was not practicing any form of Judaism. He did not circumcise his son. To this educated Austrian and respected journalist, Jewish persecution seemed a thing of the past, an embarrassment from an unenlightened age. However, whispers on the street of the, quote, impolite Jew soon grew to books that scientifically and enlightenedly examined the warped nature and physiognomy of Jews. Many of the wealthy and thriving Jewish population marked these disturbing trends as minor roadblocks to inevitable progress, Ertzel included. The massacres of the Middle Ages could never happen again in modern civilized Europe. Never again. Then something shook Herzl to his core. He was sent as a journalist to cover an incident in Paris known as the Dreyfus Affair. An artillery officer, Alfred Dreyfus, was accused of treason. Evidence later came to light that exonerated Dreyfus, but the public opinion held him guilty because he was a Jew. When Herzl heard a mob crying, Mora Jewish! death to Jews, as Dreyfus was stripped of rank and his sword broken, the security of living in a civilized age faded. Erzo realized that if Jews remained stateless, they would be forever tormented by this persecution. After the Dreyfus affair, Herzl wrote a pamphlet entitled Der Judenstaat, or the Jewish State, proposing political recognition of the Jewish homeland of Israel. He subsequently organized the First Zionist Congress and founded the World Zionist Organization, and the modern Zionist movement was born. Erzl died in 1904 with the dream of a Jewish state in his heart. He could not have guessed that another Austrian named Adolf Hitler would soon answer the Jewish question the way other nations had responded to it throughout history, but with ruthless efficiency. Herzl's own daughter would die in the concentration camps of Hitler. While the Holocaust is a unique event in history, a black hole of evil and shame for Europe that allowed it to happen, 
it also mirrored many historical elements taken from all the previous manifestations of Jew hatred. From yellow markers on clothing to book burnings to massacres seeking to end the Jewish people, all of these echo the spirit of medieval Europe and the spirit of Amalek. There is nothing new under the sun. This mirror of the Holocaust held up to the face of Europe humbled them, and in the wake of World War II, the state of Israel as a Jewish homeland was officially recognized by the United Nations. A little over half of the world's Jewish population had lived in Europe in 1939. Still, in the wake of the Holocaust, where two-thirds of the European Jewish people were killed, the remaining third immigrated to Israel in droves. In 1949, more than 249,000 Jewish refugees moved to Israel from Europe, and many hundreds of thousands more would join them from North Africa and the Middle East. Though formed in the wake of massive waves of anti-Semitism in both European and Islamic contexts, the new existence of a Jewish state became a provocation for both Arab and European nations. Though initially getting support and recognition from the United Nations in its formation, Israel barely had time to catch its breath before the neighboring countries poured out their rage in simultaneously declaring war. Indeed, as a young nation, Israel was and is not perfect, and some charges of war crimes and terrorism are accurate and justified. However, these are not at the core of the Zionist ethos and were often lamented by the Jewish agency to people such as the King of Transjordan. And even while Jewish villages in the newly birthed Israel were suffering massacres of their own. This can be contrasted with Iran and other modern enemies of Israel, such as Hamas, who make Israel's destruction their core ambition. What became increasingly evident, especially as Israel won war after war and was viewed as successful and dominant, was that Israel seemed to be held to impossible standards of conduct. Simultaneously, Israeli motivations are assumed to be wholly malicious. Many of the old accusations of the Middle Ages, like child killer, have again reared their heads. But this time, the allegations were not against a minority of people living in exile, but a state with an army and means of defending its citizens. The exact charges were wrapped up in something much more acceptable, the, quote, justice framework of anti-Zionism. Just as Austria in the 18 and 1900s had covered its simmering anti-Semitism with the pseudoscience of the Enlightenment era, so now the West can project its Jew hatred through the pseudo-justice lens of the information age and give its anti-Semitism a more palatable name, anti-Zionism. How can we thus distinguish legitimate criticism of the modern state of Israel from anti-Semitism or anti-Zionism? When Israel's actions are blown out of proportion with statements like, Palestinian refugee camps are the new Auschwitz, this is anti-Semitism. When the United Nations singles out the Jewish state of Israel for, quote, human rights abuses, while ignoring much more egregious abuses in places like Syria, this is anti-Semitism. When Western wrongdoings in the form of apartheid or colonialism are projected onto entirely different scenarios, when one state is scapegoated for all regional ills, this is anti-Semitism. When Israel's right to exist as a nation is dismissed, this is anti-Semitism. Anti-Zionism, by directly challenging the existence of the Jewish state, is by definition anti-Semitism. But even more fundamentally, this is how we know that something is anti-Semitic. Does it despise the covenant of God and the people of the covenant? Because the spirit of Amalek makes no distinction between Israel and the Jewish people. 
That is why we've seen in recent times huge spikes of hate crimes against Jews in the West, ostensibly in response to objectionable Israeli action. As Western rage again flares against Israel, the Jews living in the Western world often pay the price. During the war in May 2021 between Gaza and Israel, not only were synagogues defaced and Jewish people attacked in the streets of London and New York, not only were ancient anti-Semitic chants such as Chaiba Chaiba Yayahud brandished at protests in Paris and Chicago, but hashtags such as hashtag Hitler was right received tens of thousands of retweets on social media platforms. He who sits in heaven laughs. In light of such widespread hateful action and rhetoric, the command from Deuteronomy 25 to, quote, never forget, unquote, the hostility of Amalek is easy to keep. Even so, we know that the spirit of anti-Semitism's end will be its utter destruction. When King David posed the question, why do the nations rage in Psalm 2, he saw in his mind's eye the response of God to this rage, laughter. He who sits in heaven's laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. While we must not be lulled into a false sense of security, we must also never forget that a battle for covenant fulfillment shapes perceptions and prejudices. We can hold the state of Israel accountable for mistakes and misdeeds, but we must bear in mind the broader context to the motivations and actions taken against Israel and not allow those to be obscured by inflammatory jargon, blatant untruth, and activist fads. We need to understand that this is not merely a political battle, but a war profoundly influenced by apocalyptic ends, and God will not break his word. We can rest in God's sovereignty knowing that he will set his king on Zion's hill, no matter how destructive the nation's rage. The king of the Jews will rule and reign out of Jerusalem and keep every promise between him and Israel eternally, including ending exile, Israel dwelling in safety, the blessing of all nations, and the end to all wars. Amen. May Messiah come speedily and in our days. This has been a recording of Roots of Rage Part 3, Amalek and Anti-Zionism, from oleaster.substack.com. All Bible quotations are from the English Standard Version, unless otherwise specified. If you enjoyed listening, please feel free to read or listen to other articles at oleaster.org, receive new content in your inbox by subscribing to the Substack, or follow at oleasterbranch on X or Instagram. Any and all feedback to this or other articles is welcome. If you have a question, comment, or correction, please feel free to email contact at oleaster.org. The music in this episode is Zion Train by Alexandra Semyonuk. Thanks for listening. Until next time, Maranatha.